You know, one of the greatest scandals in fairly recent history, when you consider all of history, I guess, was the Watergate scandal. And if uh, you were alive then, I was not alive then, but if you were, you remember that. You remember not only the event itself, but it's kind of become the gold standard for botched cover-ups because of what happened following the scandal. In June of 1972, police arrested five burglars who had broken into the Watergate Hotel and office complex, and they were there, they found, to place listening bugs in offices of the Democratic National Committee. The problem was, that's bad in in and of itself, but the problem was they found out pretty quickly that these burglars had ties to the president, to President Nixon. It all, uh, that was kind of the beginning of the end. Um, But uh, a cover-up began after that. Uh, We found out later, of course, that uh, Nixon began to uh, deny everything and his involvement in it. Uh, A massive cover-up took place. But it quickly became apparent that that is just what it was. And by October, an FBI investigation had determined that the break-in was part of a massive campaign of political spying and sabotage on behalf of Nixon. Investigators, they started digging into their, their, their case. Nixon and his aides dug in their heels. They continued to deny. And even after a former White House counsel admitted to having somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 discussions with the president about the cover-up. They continued to deny. They continued to cover up. Well, then in May of 73, Nixon's new attorney general, Elliot Richardson, uh, was selected Archibald Cox to be the special investigator into this. So he begins to investigate. And after Deputy Assistant to President Nixon, Alex Butterfield, revealed that there were secret tapes of White House Oval Office conversations that included discussions about the cover-up, Cox issues a subpoena. Well, immediately Nixon orders Richardson to fire Cox, the special investigator. Richardson refused. He resigns. The Deputy Attorney General, Nixon then orders him to fire Cox. He refuses and resigns. So the next man up, the highest man on the totem pole at that point, General Robert Bork, uh, he was a Justice Department official. He finally agrees to fire Cox, and that's what's known as the Saturday Night Massacre. Eventually, though, Nixon has to turn over these tapes, and interestingly enough, there's an 18-minute gap in one of the tapes uh, where there's nothing. It becomes apparent pretty quickly that he was involved. He denied it, but then it becomes apparent, and there's really nothing left for him to do but resign in July of 1974 after the House of Representatives passed the first three articles of impeachment. Nixon resigns, and then, of course, he is pardoned, which keeps him from being the first former president to go to prison. Now, here's why I mention that. Here's the lesson in that. Covering up sin always, always, always makes matters worse. You can try all you want, but the Bible assures us that eventually our sin will find us out. And here's, here's what should really motivate us, and that's that sin grieves the heart of God. 
Uh, Any sin is a sin against him. It grieves his heart. It does damage to the person in sin. And as we'll see in today's passage, almost without exception, your sin is going to affect somebody else. It's going to have an impact on somebody else. We're in part five of our series, Making an Impact in Your World. We're talking about leaving a legacy. And the way that we do that, if we want to leave a legacy for the Lord that honors the Lord, it's about being faithful. Because if we are faithful, we will leave a legacy. If we are faithful, God will take care of our legacy. And we're learning what to do and what not to do. And here again is, a, is an example of what not to do on the part of Achan, which we will look at. But we also see what to do, how to handle a situation, and how Joshua handles this situation. Uh, We need to be clear, okay? Christians, those of us who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we will still struggle with temptation. We will still commit sin. We're going to fall from time to time. And so at the same time, there's a difference between stumbling and falling and living habitually in sin, and living in rebellion against God. So we're going to separate those two things this morning. Both are bad. It's bad when we mess up, but we turn from that sin when we are brought under conviction. We confess that sin, and as believers, we're brought back into right fellowship with God. But if we attempt to cover it up and continue in that sin, it's going to lead to heartache after heartache after heartache, not only for you, not only for me, but for the people in your life that are impacted by that. It's damaging. Sin is damaging to our relationships with God and our relationships with each other. And that's the point of 1 John 1, 5 through 10. And we'll look at that as we begin this morning. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness... We are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar And his word is not in us. Throughout this passage, John, he strips away every excuse for denial of sin. And and whatever reason we might use for justifying sin. When someone sins, two things is true. Either they are still lost or they are a genuine believer in Christ who has messed up or choosing to rebel. It falls into those two categories. And by rebellion, again, I don't mean those times when we fall flat on our faces. By rebellion, I mean walking when we're walking with the Lord and then we make a, a, a conscious decision to go our own way and continue in that way even though we know God wants us to follow the path that he's chosen for us. 1 John 3, 2, a little bit earlier in 1 John, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We know we're not perfect. We're going to fall. We will fall from time to time. But what I'm talking about here, when I say rebellion, rebellion is making a conscious choice 
to continue, even indulge in our sinful behavior. And that's what John means when he talks about walking in darkness. It's choosing to live like a non-believer even though I am a follower of Christ. And when that happens, it's time for some honest, constructive, maybe even a little painful self-examination or examination by the Holy Spirit. Fortunately, 1 John 1, 9 tells us that we have a solution here. There is a remedy to the sin problem. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now that brings us to Joshua chapter 6. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 6 and 7 this morning. This tells a story of a victorious community that enjoyed the blessings of God. Now, we, we, we find out, though, it's not long before we, find, we discover that they, they experienced defeat. And it's unexplainable from a human perspective, and we'll get into that. But here's what we see, kind of the setting for Joshua 6. We know that God had delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt. And we know that when Joshua was much younger... A group of spies went, he with a group of spies went and scouted the promised land. The people decided that they could not take the promised land, even though God had promised them the promised land, all right? So they rebelled against God, and they suffered, and they wandered in the wilderness until that generation that rejected God's plan died off. And so what we have here is a new, younger generation who needed some encouragement. So God gave them a miraculous victory against the fortress city of Jericho. In verses 15 through 21 of Joshua chapter 6, we see God command them to march around the city of Jericho seven times. He gives them a miraculous victory over the city of Jericho. And this is a huge victory. But he gave them some specific instructions. Everything in the city was to be set apart for destruction. It was supposed to be destroyed. And except for those, for Rahab and her family who had protected the spies, okay, they were not to be destroyed. And any gold and silver valuables that were found there were to be set apart for the Lord's treasury. Everything else was to be destroyed and nothing was to be kept by the soldiers. Nothing. The only thing kept other than the people that were saved were was the gold and silver, the valuables, and that was to be kept for the Lord. Those were the instructions. And that experience of complete victory that God gives them with those instructions sets the stage for the story of Achan, a man whose sin brought calamity. From this passage, we're going to see the results of unconfessed sin. We're going to learn from Achan what not to do, all right? But then we will see Joshua's response and learn how to respond to sin. So the first lesson we see from this, sin in the camp. Sin in the camp, unconfessed sin, rebellion, turns victory into defeat. This victory in chapter 6, again, was, was an important victory. It was this younger generation's Red Sea experience. It was God giving them a, a miraculous victory. And it was a strategic victory as well. This city of Jericho was vital 
to taking the promised land, but you can compare it, if you know your World War II history, you can, bear, you can compare it to the victory in World War II, the invasion of Normandy. That was the beginning of the end of the war. Even Hitler knew that. But there were still battles to be fought. Even though it was the beginning of the end, there were still many battles to be fought. And that's the same here for the nation of Israel. The city of Jericho was the beginning of the end. It was the beginning of them finally conquering and receiving the long-awaited promised land. But there were still battles to be fought. So obedience was key. Following God was key. Staying loyal to him and to he and his commands was key. None of these battles were going to be easy, especially if there's sin in the camp. So let's start after, right after the victory in Jericho with Joshua chapter 6, verse 27, and then we'll move into chapter 7. The Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. The Israelites, however, were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. You remember that command? The, destroy the, everything except the valuables, Rahab, her family, and, and those are to be set apart. The valuables are to be set apart for the Lord, but they were unfaithful. There's the first sign that something's gone wrong. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart, and the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. That word, however, in chapter 7, verse 1, is a key powerful word. This one word turns the celebration in chapter 6 over the victory of Jericho to grief, pretty to defeat pretty quickly. The verse gives us a summary, these verses, and then verse 2 through 26 gives us the details. This, this sudden defeat that we're going to see is shocking. After this miracle victory, a sudden, unexplainable defeat. They're facing the city of Ai, which is Ai, which is nothing compared to the city of Jericho. Look at verse 2, chapter 7. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Haven, east of Bethel, and told them, go up and scout out the land. So the men went up and scouted Ai. After returning to Joshua, they reported to him, Don't send all the people, but send about 2,000 or 3,000 men to attack Ai, since the people of Ai are so few. Don't wear out your people. So basically what they're saying is, hey, this is not a big deal, okay? And this was the right thing to do. Joshua doesn't want to wear out all of his forces on a city that really can't defend itself. It's a small city, so they, the, the scouts say, just send two or 3,000. They'll take care of them. The rest of the troops... Uh, can rest so that they will be fresh for the next battle. And it was perfectly logical for them to do that. The name I, though, means ruin. It could, again, couldn't have been that impressive. So he does this, but we see in verse 4, about 3,000 men went up there, but they fled from the men of I. The men of I struck down about 36 of them and chased them from the outside to the city gate to the quarry, striking them down on on their descent. 36 men are killed, and here's the thing. More than likely, they were shot in the back because they were fleeing. I mean, this little bitty nothing ruin of a town, don't need but two or 3,000 men, send them, they'll have no problem. But suddenly, not only are they defeated, they lose 36 men, and it doesn't make sense. So you have to ask, when something like this happens, 
And we've experienced unexplained defeats in our lives. I'm sure we all have. Once this happens, you have to ask what's changed. So they had this victory over the city of Jericho, which they should not have won. And then they're defeated by this little bitty nothing town. What's changed? Why suddenly am I experiencing a defeat? Whenever something happens in your life, in my life this way, We need to stop and pay close attention. There needs to be some evaluation. There needs to be some listening to the Holy Spirit as He performs an evaluation. There's always a reason for something like this. So so it's, it's important that we make an attempt to find out what's changed, what's gone wrong. There has to be something here that God's trying to teach them. So let's see how Joshua responds. Verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening, as did the elders of Israel. They all put dust on their heads. O Lord God, Joshua said, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. What can I say, Lord, now that Israel has turned its back and run from from its enemies? When the Canaanites and all who live in the land hear about this, they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. Then what will you do about your great name? Joshua is such a great leader. First, he starts with grief for the fallen soldiers. He's concerned about the fallen soldiers. Then he's concerned about the future of the nation of Israel. But what he's concerned about most, and if you remember Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls, his greatest concern was that the name of God was in reproach. And Joshua's greatest concern here is for the name, for the glory, for the reputation of God. What will they say? What will happen to the reputation, your reputation, God, your great and glorious name? He's concerned for the name of God. This defeat was unexplainable. So Joshua does what he absolutely should have done, and he immediately takes it to the Lord. Lord, explain this to me. What's happened? What's gone wrong? Why this victory now, this defeat? Something's changed. He takes it to the Lord, which is exactly what we should do. And this is a lesson for all leaders, whether in business, ministry, or whatever. Here's the lesson. In the face of mysterious defeat, put the brakes on, stop everything, and take time to look up. Ask the Lord to reveal the reason. Ask the Lord. When something like this happens, it's worth careful analysis. And in this case... The reason was sin in the camp, which leads us to result number two. This sin needed to be dealt with. Sin in the camp must be confronted. It must be confronted. Joshua prayed sincerely and the Lord answered. Look at verse 10. The Lord then said to Joshua, stand up. Why have you fallen face down? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They have taken some of what was set apart. They have stolen, deceived, and put those things with their own belongings. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They will turn their backs and run from their enemies because they have been set apart for destruction. I will no longer be with you. That sounds pretty bad. It is. But here's the out. Unless you remove from among you what has been set apart. 
Go and consecrate the people. Tell them to consecrate themselves. For tomorrow, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. There are things that are set apart among you. You remember those commands, those things that were supposed to be set apart for the Lord, for destruction or his treasury. There are things set apart among you, Israel. You will not be able to stand against your enemies unless you remove what is set apart. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord selects will come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord selects is to come forward family by family. And the family the Lord selects is to come forward man by man. The one who is caught with the things set apart must be burned along with everything that he has because he has violated the Lord's covenant and committed an outrage in Israel. Finally, the defeat makes sense. Finally, God had promised Israel victory, gave it to them at Jericho, but gave them specific instructions. They didn't follow those instructions, didn't know it at the time, but somebody took some stuff they weren't supposed to. So this little bitty town of Ai that they should have defeated without any problem, they experienced a massive defeat. But now at least it makes sense. This wasn't complicated. They weren't supposed to take the stuff. The soldiers weren't, but they did. Now, here's the thing. Normally, after a city fell like that, you were supposed to take everything. That's what the soldiers did. They took stuff, whatever they could get, they took. And so, humanly speaking, it made sense for them to do this, but God had given them clear instructions not to take anything for themselves. Everything was set apart for the Lord, either for destruction or for his treasury. Unfortunately, somebody had disobeyed God. And now the entire nation had suffered as a result of one person's sin. J. Sidlow Baxter describes the effect this way. The electric wire of fellowship between God and Israel had been cut and the current of power therefore ceased to flow. Disobedience resulted in God withholding his power. And so they experienced defeat. And that's the consequence when there's sin in the camp. The presence of sin interrupted God's desire to bless his people, to bless the nation. And this is where we learn an important truth slash warning. We often stand in the way of our own blessings. God, hear this, God will never bless us at the expense of our holiness. He is more concerned that we become like his son than he, are, than he is that we are comfortable. Yeah, God wants to bless you with love. He wants to bless you with his presence. He may not make you wealthy. This isn't a health and wealth thing. But he wants to bless you. Scripture is clear about that. But if you're living in disobedience, he is more concerned with your holiness and that you, you, that you confess whatever sin that you are actively participating in. He's more concerned about your right fellowship with him so that he can continue to mold you and shape you into the image of Jesus than he is you being comfortable. And he will withhold blessings if we are acting in disobedience. This effect of concealed sin in the camp is one of the most confusing, mind-boggling experiences of leadership. Things that should work don't, and it doesn't make sense. And then later, sometimes years later, you find out that there was a reason for that, that there was sin in the camp. Light is shined on the, the issue. Crystal clarity is achieved. In this case... Sin had literally been buried. 
and covered up. As we will find, one of the soldiers disobeyed God's command and took the treasure that was supposed to be given to the Lord. And now it's been discovered and a search is conducted for the guilty party. Look at verse 16. Joshua got up early in the next morning. He had Israel come forward tribe by tribe and the tribe of Judah was selected. He had the clans of Judah come forward. And the Zerahite clan was selected. He had the Zerahite clan come forward by heads of families, and Zabdi was selected. What we find is that Achan had buried this treasure, what he had taken, in his tent, and now he was trying to cover his sin up by staying silent. But that never works, and I want to help you understand that if I can. Anna Shirley has agreed to help me. Where are you, Annie? Where'd she go? There she is. All right. You can't hide now. You already agreed. All right. Annie likes her ice cream. Not quite as much as Gracie likes ice cream, but Annie volunteered. So there we go. So Annie, we're gonna have, I'm going to let you have some ice cream this morning, okay? Does that sound good? <laughs> All right. So we'll start here. Got vanilla, and it's still somewhat frozen. So actually, it's still in good shape. All right. So let me give you a little bit of ice cream, all right? I'll go ahead and give you a good bit. Okay. All right, there you go. Take a bite and see what you think. Sorry, y'all. I can pass it around like an offering plate. Is that pretty good? Okay, so let's take this. This is good, just the way that it is. All right, let's give you a different, a little bit different here, okay? All right, now you can't waste food, so you got to eat this, all right? <laughs> all right, so we're going to take this. Okay, now, we're going to do something just a little, don't eat it yet, we're going to do something just a little bit different, okay? I got some salt here, all right? You ever tried salt on your ice cream? All right, well, you're about to. So, how you doing? How's your day been? All right. <laughs> it's what? It's a lot of salt. Yeah, it is. Okay, but here's the thing, you can't really see the salt, can you? Can't see it at all. So, it's probably... Not going to bother you. So let's try it. Let's see what you think. Take you a nice little bite there. <laughs> okay. All right. We're going to try one more thing. I think I've got a remedy, okay? There's salt on the ice cream, but I think I've got a solution. Are you ready to try it? Okay. You re- are you willing to try it? You've already volunteered, so you've got to do it now. There's no getting out. Thankfully, I have some chocolate syrup. I know there's salt on there. Also, no, I forgot to open this, so Sorry. <laughs> I made sure the ice cream was open, so there's that. All right. I've got some chocolate syrup. You love chocolate syrup on your ice cream, right? Okay. So let's try this. There's still salt, but let's put some chocolate syrup on there. Really? I mean, you really couldn't see the salt before. I put a lot of chocolate syrup on there, all right? You really can't see the chocolate syrup now. So take you a little bite and see what you think. Oh. Is it? Is it better? Okay. All right. That wasn't what you were supposed to say. All right. <laughs> Let's try this. <laughs> See, you should have just gone with the bit here, and now you wouldn't have to do this. All right. So now, here you go. All right. There's plenty of chocolate on here, so let's try it. We've covered it up. Take a little bite. <laughs> is, is that pretty bad? All right. Y'all, thank you so much. Somebody give this child a drink of water, please. Thank you. All right. Here's the lesson, all right? It doesn't matter how much you try to cover it up. 
It's still, I mean, salt's not supposed to go on ice cream. I know some recipes may call for just a pinch, but that's a lot of salt. And it's, it doesn't matter what you put on it. I mean, even when you just put the salt on the ice cream by itself, it looks like you, I mean, you can't see it. It just kind of blends in with the ice cream. But boy, you take a bite, Annie, isn't it right? You take a bite and you know it's there immediately. I'm going to put this up so there's not ice cream everywhere. You can try to cover it up with chocolate syrup. You can try to cover it up with anything, and it's still, it is going, it is not going to taste good. Sin's the same way. You can cover it up, and to everybody that's looking, it may appear that nothing's wrong. But things start to happen, and people begin to notice that things aren't right. It may be in your life that they recognize it. It may affect the entire ministry that you're involved in, and that's what happens here. It happened to the entire nation of Israel. One person's cover-up affected an entire nation. And the penalty was great. Joshua cast this dragnet. Everybody knows. Or Joshua knows. He sought the Lord. The penalty is, and the reason Achan's trying so hard to cover this up is because he knew the penalty by this time. Verse 15 told told Joshua, God said, the one who's caught with the things set apart must be burned along with everything that belongs to him. Can you imagine the pressure? Tribe by tribe, family by family, person by person. The dragnet's closing in. The noose is getting tighter, and he knows it. And, and what we learn here is that some sins can become a very public scandal. You know, some sins affect you and the people around you, and it's not a public deal. But some sins can affect a great number of people. The manhunt continues. God tells Joshua to cast lots to fine-tune his search. This was basically rolling dice, which we think of as a game of chance. But before the Holy Spirit took up residence in people's lives, which we have now, those of us who are followers of Christ, this was how they determined God's plan here. This was what God instructed them to do. It's not chance. God is controlling the outcome. And so verse 18, we read, he then had Zabdi's family come forward, man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was selected. So Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord. See, he's still concerned with the glory of God, the name of God. Give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make a confession to him. I urge you, tell me what you have done. Don't hide anything from me. You know, I feel... For Joshua, as he confronts sin, I've had confrontations as a leader in my ministry, and absolutely none of them were enjoyable. I don't enjoy confrontation. I think some people do, but I don't understand why. Most people don't, right? Um, you know, sometimes the outcome's positive, sometimes it's not. Confrontations, the outcome may be good, but the confrontation itself is no fun. And, and when someone's confronted with sin, sometimes it takes them hours, even years, to come to terms with it. But sometimes people just, you know, they're waiting for like a, a release, a trigger, and they just, it comes out. And that's what happens here with Achan. Achan replied to Joshua, verse 20, It's true, I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spools of, uh, the spools of beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver and a bar of gold, Weighing a pound and a quarter, I coveted them and took them. You can see for yourself, they are concealed in the ground inside my tent, and the silver under the cloak. 
So Joshua sent messengers who ran to the tent, and there was the cloak concealed in his tent with the silver underneath. Don't miss the downward spiral here, okay? This is how Achan describes it. I saw it, then I coveted it. That was Seeing it's one thing, then he covets. That's his first mistake. That lead to, I took it. I coveted it. I took it. He knew it was wrong. He knew he wasn't supposed to do, so what does he do? What does he do then? He hides it. I saw, I coveted, I took, and then I hid. That's the progression of sin. I see something, I'm tempted by something, and instead of taking the out that God gives me, I begin to covet it. I covet it some more, so then I take whatever that is, or I do whatever that is. And then I know I'm guilty, so the natural instinct is just like Watergate, I want to cover it up. I begin the cover-up. But the progression doesn't end there. We see, finally, he gets caught. I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid. But guess what? You're going to get caught because God sees everything. He hid it from the people. Nobody knew who took the stuff until the investigation was complete. But God knew all along. He knew all along. These were instructions given to the people so that they could practice obedience. And, and God knew what was going to happen. But Joshua had to exercise obedience and get rid of the sin in the camp. This was a test for Joshua and his leadership. You know, we, we don't usually think about getting caught before we sin. That's why we do it. We don't think about the consequences. We ignore the consequences. You know, at the time... Achan probably, right, and I'm, I'm, you know, this isn't in Scripture. This is, you know, my own thinking, but people tend to do this, and that's why I think Achan probably rationalized his sin, right? You know, I've served the Lord. I've fought in battle. I deserve at least something for this. And that was the thinking of the time. You took whatever you could find. So he probably rationalized it. We have a tendency to do that. The truth is our sinful nature can be incredibly inventive when it comes to rationalizing sin. It's amazing what we can rationalize, but it doesn't make it right. And that in and of itself is a part of the cover-up. We see, we covet, we take, we hide, and you can better believe eventually you will get caught. And this leads us to our third result. Sin in the camp will bring punishment. Achan brought trouble to his home when he brought home those valuables. Frederick Buckner once wrote this about confession. To confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything that he doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however, they are like the abyss between you and God. When you confess them, they become the Golden Gate Bridge. Sin separates us from God. If you're lost, you're separated from God. And if you're not redeemed, you will remain separated from God in hell for all eternity. That's what the Bible teaches us. As a believer, sin doesn't separate you in, in the, 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 the same manner. You're still saved, but it does disrupt your fellowship with God. It removes you from the blessings of God. It makes you ineffective for God. You're not accomplishing the purpose that God set you out for, because until you deal with that sin, He can't use you the way He intends, which leads to defeat unless sin is taken care of. And you know, I have to think, 
If only Achan would have confessed his sin voluntarily and begged for mercy, maybe he would have received it. Instead, he hid it and he covered it up even as the investigation was going on. And his entire family paid the price. Verse 23, they took the things from inside the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out in the Lord's presence. Then Joshua and all Israel... With him took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the cloak, and the bar of gold, his sons and daughters, his ox, donkey, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and brought them up to the valley of Accord. Joshua said, Why have you brought us trouble? Today the Lord will bring you trouble. So all Israel stoned them to death. They burned their bodies, threw stones on them, and raised over them a large pile of rocks that remains still today. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, that place is called the Valley of Accor still today. Joshua uses an interesting play on words here. Achan's name actually means trouble. (laughs) And he says, trouble, why did you bring your trouble to us? Essentially, is what he's saying here. Then he takes them to a place called Accor, and he executes justice. It's the same, Accor has the same... Root meaning of place of trouble. So he takes trouble to the place of trouble and he executes justice. And after executing Achan and all the people who helped him conceal his sin, their possessions were burned in accordance with God's command and their graves were marked by by memorial stones so that no one would forget what happened here. It's shocking, right? And it's hard for us in our modern culture, I think, partly because of how compromised we've become to understand this. But here's the deal. Don't look at this and think, oh, what a vengeful God. This is what sin deserves. Sin, the punishment for sin is death. Now, praise God, Jesus took that punishment for us on the cross so that we don't have to. But this is what sin deserves. It deserves death. We're under a new covenant of grace by now. Praise the Lord. All right? We can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ, by grace. We don't have to receive this punishment. If you don't accept Jesus, you will. But we don't have to. But, but listen, just because we are under the covenant of grace does not mean we should view sin any different than this. Sin is serious, and it has to be dealt with. Even if you are saved, if there's sin in your life, if there's sin in my life, I've got to deal with it because it's going to affect me, and it's going to affect the people that I love. This affected the entire family. Aiken's entire family suffered because of his sin. Now, they helped him cover it up. They would have known it was in his tent, but still, they suffered because of his sin. And Satan would love nothing more than to keep that sin buried in your life. To convince you that you deserve whatever you're indulging in. To convince you that it's not going to affect you really. And it's not going, if it does affect anybody, it will only be you. It won't be anybody else. That's what Satan would love. But what would happen, the reason he would love that, because he knows it's going to rot us from the inside out like a cancer. And it will affect the people in our lives. It will affect the ministry that we are a part of, the organization that we are a part of, especially if we're leading that organization. I've seen a person's private sin break up an entire family, an entire church, entire businesses. 
I've seen fall because of unconfessed sin. There are three principles that I want us to remember before we finish. Three principles. Sin in the camp stinks and others can detect its stench. Usually, the closer a person's walking with the Lord, the more sensitive they are to that stench. They know something's wrong. They know something's off. They may not be able to put a finger on it, but they know that something's off. Now, listen, don't let this make you, you know, jump at every shadow. We shouldn't be critical of each other, and we shouldn't be running around, hey, you sinner, (laughs) there's something wrong in your life. I mean, no. But when we see that something's off, Start with ourselves and seek the Lord. Do exactly what Joshua did. If something's not right and you know something's not right and and unexplained things are happening in your life or in whatever organization, ministry you're a part of, seek the Lord. Make sure your relationship is right. Confess any sin in your life that needs to be confessed and seek the Lord and ask him to reveal to you What's the pro- what the problem is. And then when it's revealed, the only thing to do is to confess and to turn from that sin. If, it's, if you, there's sin in your life and you know it's there and you've been hiding it, you've been covering it up, don't wait. Confess it today because the promise we have in 1 John, verses one, uh, 1 John 1, verses 5 through 9, especially verse 9, is that if we confess that sin, God is quick to forgive. Grace is available. Mercy has been made available. Jesus took your punishment. He will forgive you of your sin and he will save you and set you apart for his service. And if you are saved, if you confess that sin, your relationship with God is disrupted. If you confess it, you can be restored right now because your sins have already been nailed to the cross. They've already been forgiven. You need to confess so that your relationship with God is right, but confess Second principle, uneasiness is the companion of hidden sin. Here's the thing. Your heart, my heart, is not designed to remain comfortable with hidden sin. And you won't be. You may convince yourself that you are. But there's going to be, if you're lost, you know something's missing from your life. There's a God-shaped hole. If you're saved, you can rationalize, you can convince yourself that you're okay, but you know you're not. Because you know you're living in disobedience. The heart was not designed, even when you're lost, the heart is not designed to live with hidden sin. It's not designed. But you can be free of that if you confess. Third principle, when wrong is uncovered, God honors swift, decisive, and thorough action. I'm going to say it again. I hate confrontation. I hate it. I've never liked confrontation. My my tendency is to avoid it at all costs. But I've had to confront people with sin, unfortunately. I can never remember a time, though, where I chose to put off confrontation and thought it was a good idea to do that later. When it has to be done, it has to be done. And I wish I could say that all confrontations went well. (laughs) Some did. Many didn't. But when I had to confront something in ministry, in leadership, I regretted it if I put it off. But when I finally did it, whether it went bad or it went good, at the end of the day, I was okay with it because God's glory had been upheld. 
Integrity had been upheld. The integrity of the ministry had been upheld. Not that I'm perfect. I've been confronted about my own sin from time to time. None of us are perfect. I have a people that hold me accountable. But the integrity has to be upheld. Now, Achan's story turned out pretty bad for he and his family. The history of the nation of Israel is stained. This is in the Bible for a reason. It's stained by this awful defeat by a ruined city. So it's there. Achan rejected every opportunity to turn from his sin until he was finally caught. But when the Lord forced, when he forced the Lord's hand and Israel dealt with the sin without delay, sin was gone from the camp. And it's no coincidence that the very next chapter tells us the story of the nation's victory over I. They achieved victory. They dealt with the sin. They confessed it. They, the consequences, the justice was handed down. And the very next chapter, we see victory in the Lord once again. Because God's power, that conduit of God's power, was restored. Some of you may have heard of Lieutenant Airy Nave. Got a picture. This is him. And he was known. He was the first British officer to make a successful escape from Colditz, one of the most famous POW camps in World War II. Colditz Castle in eastern Germany was the name. That it, that it had. It was built on a huge slope on a high hill. And the reason it was known was because people that were troubled prisoners, usually those who had escaped from other prison camps, were sent there because it was considered to be unescapable. You couldn't escape it. All right? And that's why Airy Nave was, was sent there. He had already escaped from another camp. And in July, or January the 5th, 1942, Nave and a Dutch officer. They, they had been sent there, but they actually managed to get into a German guardhouse. They were disguised as German officers. They walked out confidently past some German guards through a gate into a dry moat across a park and over the wall. Then they got some civilian clothes. They put those on. They crossed into Switzerland, who is neutral, right? They crossed into Switzerland, and after they made a successful escape from a prison that people considered unescapable. So they escaped. Well, the U.K. figured this would be valuable. So they made him a part of, uh, he was employed by MI9, and he, he helped advise other people on how to escape those types of situations. His code name was Saturday. Don't know why. <laughs> Just thought that was it. You know, important piece of information. But he was given the—he was so good at escaping. He was a given—he was given a job advising other people on how to escape if they ever found them in those situations. That's what this story is. It's advice. That's what this sermon is for myself, for all of us. It's advice on how to escape. I could work for him by nine, I guess. This is advice on how to escape. If there's sin in your life, you're not the only one. You're not the only person who's been in that situation. We all have. If there's unconfessed sin, listen, if you don't know Jesus, there's unconfessed sin in your life. I'm not saying that in a judgmental way because I've been there too. We all have. But I'm advising you on how to escape. You can get out of that. That thing that's missing from your life is your Savior. He died for you on the cross. 
He paid that death penalty for your sins. Because he wants to know you. He wants you to know him. He already knows you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to experience his wonderful, glorious, not easy, but glorious, blessing-filled plan for your life. That includes a relationship with him and an eternity with him when this life is over. But you have to accept it. He's not going to force it on you. He died on the cross and he was raised from the dead. And he offers you salvation. But if you accept it, you can be free from that bondage, that prison of sin. If you are a follower of Christ and you're living with unconfessed sin, nobody has to tell you, you know it. Again, we've all been there. I know what that feels like too. But I'm offering you, I'm advising you on a way of escape. Because if you don't confess and turn from that sin, it's going to affect your life. It's going to affect your family. And if you're a part of this church, it's going to affect this church. But we have a way to receive complete and total forgiveness. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of that sin. And guess what? Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We are holy because of Christ's holiness. We are righteous because he gives us his righteousness. And we can walk in fellowship with him. We can experience one of two things. We can experience defeat after defeat after defeat if we live with unconfessed sin. Or we can experience victory after victory after victory. I don't know about you, but I'm for victory. If you are the one, and you're not alone, (laughs) if you confess your sin... You can receive forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your, the blessing of forgiveness and restoration. God, we have all sinned and fallen short of your glory. We all are in that camp. But there's a difference between messing up and seeking forgiveness. There's a difference between that and intentionally, willfully rebelling against you and and continuing in sin and covering up that sin and hoping that no one finds out because the truth is you already know. And so if that applies to any of us here today, if, if there's someone here who's lost, who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that you would convict them and bring them, draw them into a relationship with you and that they would accept that gift of salvation that you offer, that they would come forward And allow me to share with them the next step to take. If there are others who are dealing with unconfessed sin, I pray that this would be a time of confession and restoration. Right where they are even. Either at the altar or right where they are. That we would seek your face in this moment. And that you would reveal to us anything in our lives, any impurities that are displeasing to you. Father, may we respond to your word. May we respond to your Holy Spirit as you speak to us in complete obedience. Because there's really no such thing as partial obedience. That's disobedience. Any hesitation in obedience is disobedience. So may we obey you now and always. Give us strength. Give us wisdom to know your will and to obey your will. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand? for this time of commitment.